you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. And last week we began the Sermon on the Mount, where we read that there was a multitude following Jesus back in chapter 4. He was doing these amazing miracles and uh, without any, just, just healing everybody. It was just amazing, proving himself as the Messiah, the promised one of Israel and the scriptures. And then he went up to the mountain and we're told that the multitudes came to him. And from that, we're told he sat down and began to teach his disciples. So we really have two types of people in this group setting for Jesus as he's teaching the famous Sermon on the Mount. There's a large multitude, and like there is in any case, there's a large multitude. People are hearing, but, you know, are they really hearing? And so he's focused on the disciples, those people that are truly committed to him and what it's going to be like to follow him and serve him. And, of course, this is the first year of his ministry, at like a three-year ministry, where he's being presented as the Messiah of Israel. And that's our context for, really, human history's most famous words the Sermon on the Mount. So last week we saw the Beatitudes, where the attitude of humility and brokenness and where God meets that and he blesses those people. He also taught that there would be persecution for Christ's namesake and for righteousness sake. But he said, don't worry about it. There's a blessing in that and he's overcome the world. Then we saw also where he said that believers are the salt of the earth. So there's value, preservation and flavor in the life of a believer as we live our life in the human experience in every generation. And we're the light of the world, that we shine in darkness. And we talked about last week that when it's darkest, that light shines brightest. Even the smallest light in the darkest backdrop will shine from so far away. And we talked about how the Lord might be spreading us out to challenging situations where it's very dark that our light can shine brightly all the more. And so that was the introduction or the first part of the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus was teaching. And now tonight we come to... A really like a, a passage it's like a bridge passage it sets up if you will the rest of the sermon on the mount but what jesus says is so strong and so profound tonight we really want to focus on it in application right away so verse 17 he says this do not think that i came to destroy the law or the prophets referring to the old testament i did not come to destroy but to fulfill for surely i say to you till heaven and earth pass away one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we read this in our world and our Western world understanding of church and Jesus and all that. And we're like, well, yeah. But in their world, in the context when they would have heard this, this would have been shocking to the common people. There in the Gospel of Mark, we're told that the common people heard Jesus gladly. And we picture just common, everyday people just grinding out the human experience where he says that their righteousness has to exceed that of the religious leaders and in their mind, they would picture the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were very arrogant and aloof in most cases, as being right with God, and they weren't, the people, and, but they like, ooh and ah, at, at how they appeared and how they carried themselves. And so when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds them, you can by no means inherit the kingdom of God, that would have been like so, uh, in, without full context, be like, then who can do such a thing? 
I'll give you a really good example. Being raised Catholic, I distinctly remember a Sunday at the mission in Oceanside when I was a teenager. My mom would occasionally, you know, we'd go to St. Patrick's in Carlsbad, then eventually St. Francis in Vista, but we went to the mission on occasion because why wouldn't you if you're Catholic, right? So we go to the mission. And I was like, I really, and in my mind, I was like 14 or 15, I was like, I, I really, I really want to serve God. I want to be great, whatever I do, I want to be great, and I should serve God, and I want to be great serving God. And I remember as I was at that particular Catholic Mass at the Oceanside Mission, and the altar boys were doing their stuff, and the priests, and they're doing the Mass and everything, and I thought, it's not obtainable. That's what I thought in my teenage mind. I've been going to catechism and all that, by the, and, and Catholic services my whole life, but I, re, I thought, if that's the highest pinnacle of what it means to be really good with God and truly serve God at the highest level, I can't do it. It's not attainable. I want to have a wife. I want to have children. I want to have a family. And if that's it, I can't do it. And the theology that followed that in my teenage mind was, if I can't do it the, the best way and the highest way, then why even try? It really, there was a, it was like a yoke of unattainability to me that discouraged me from wanting to serve the Lord. I, no fault to them, it's just the way it was. But in my mind, it's like, I want to be great. I want to be great at religion. I want to be great for God. And if that's greatness, I can't do it. So I'm not even going to try. Can you relate to that in, some, in your life? We all try different things and you might hit a wall and you go, well, that's as good as I'm going to be. Like me with Spanish. I did really well with Spanish, but then I just hit this spot where I couldn't do past tense congregations of the verbs. And I just, huh, I just couldn't do it. I tried. I even changed phone apps for it, you know? I switched from Duolingo to some other ones. I just, I just couldn't do it. And, um, and I realized, you know, my IQ has a limit. And my Spanish works, and it works practically when I need it to, and I think and meditate in Spanish still. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just, I'm never going to be conversational for politics in the Spanish language. And I, I kind of like, that was it. I tapped out. And so I think we can relate to that. And when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the religious leaders, I, I can imagine a lot of people just tapping out right away. It's like, well, it's like, I can't do it. I, can't, I just can't do that. Like, how do you do that? But you see, the key to it all is actually in the fullness of the scriptures and really what Jesus is moving toward in the Sermon on the Mount. It's what he says before he says that that really sets us up to understand that last phrase. This is Jesus talking about him and the law, the law of God, and also the prophets, but because he emphasizes commandments in the middle, it's really more like Jesus and the law of God, the law of Moses, which of course we get in Exodus and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament in various ways for different reasons. Jesus fulfills it all, and that's what we're reminded of tonight. Jesus fulfills it all. And most particularly, he fulfills the righteous, perfect life that the law described in the Ten Commandments. He's the second Adam, the perfect human, son of God, son of man. He fulfills what no one else can do. He, born of the virgin, the perfect, sinless life. So he fulfills the perfect, righteous requirements of God's law. Growing up, I didn't like the Ten Commandments because I broke the Ten Commandments. I didn't, I didn't like the Ten Commandments. I didn't like them at all because I broke them. And they reminded me that I'm, a, I'm like a, a naughty boy. You know, like I knew the Ten Commandments when I was an elementary age. And 
I mean, when I stole baseball cards or I lied to my mom or provoked my brother, I'm like, yeah, surely I'm, I'm guilty. I didn't like them. I couldn't do them. And no matter how hard any of us ever try to fulfill the Ten Commandments, talking about the moral part of the law, we're, we're going we're gonna, to, you know, we've come up short. And there's lots of Christian denominations that would emphasize that as an exterior evidence of Christian growth, of human effort. But we know by the, by the deeds of the law, no flesh is justified in God's sight. And for 4,000 years from the dawn of creation, from the fall in the Garden of Eden, every human being failed in fulfilling the revelation of God's righteous requirements, the moral requirements as they understood them. And since most societies recognize the Ten Commandments in one form or another, as they do uh, an original man and a global flood or a regional flood, we realize that this is in the human nature from being descendants of Adam, that we, we understand a moral code of right and wrong in our conscience, and we also understand that we break it. Thus, the drive for world religions, or as it says in Ecclesiastes, God's put eternity in our hearts. And so people have that sense of sin, or they, or they either try to resolve it, or they sear their conscience and just give up on it. But Jesus said he didn't come to counsel the law, and so people were already playing him against the law of God, like somehow he's against the law of God. People did that with Paul the Apostle and the early church, that somehow Paul the Apostle was against God's law, they say they accuse him in the book of Acts of, of uh, speaking and teaching against the law, which nothing could have been further from the truth. But until Christ came, we're told in Galatians that the law of God was our tutor to show us we must be saved and right with God through another means other than justifying ourselves by good works of keeping the Ten Commandments. All, everyone that was justified in the Old Testament was justified by faith from from Abel, righteous Abel, all the way through to Noah and right through to Abraham and anyone that was, that's why Hebrews 11 is a hall of faith. They were justified by faith and they did the best they could, living by faith. But no one ever in the Old Testament or in this, to this time in human history has ever been justified before God by a self-righteousness devoid of faith that somehow God has to accept this because we are good people or better than our neighbor or in some cases if we think we're perfect jesus was born of the virgin and therefore is not a descendant of the first adam but he is the second adam as the new testament makes clear and he came to fulfill the law and he did what we could never do he lived the perfect sinless life in our place that's what he did in fact there when he was resurrected there in the gospel of luke when he appears on the road to emmaus and uh, those disciples were grieving over having not heard what's going on in Jerusalem. And he said, ought not the Christ to suffer and die and rise from the grave? He said, and fulfill the law and fulfill what God spoken in the Old Testament. And they're like, huh? And then later on in the same chapter 24, when he appears to the, all the apostles, it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, the Old Testament, that all these things had to be so. And he said he came and that his life, his righteous life, and the deeds that he did in perfection, and his death, burial, and resurrection, that he fulfilled the law and the prophets, and he says in Luke 24, and the Psalms, which is a summary of the, hist the poetic books of the Old Testament. So there in Luke 24, Jesus says, I fulfilled, the Old Testament is essentially in three segments. The historical books referred to collectively as the law, the poetic books, 
Jesus referred to as Psalms, so Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Solomon. And then the prophetic books, beginning with Isaiah. When Jesus appeared in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration with the other apostles there, Peter, John, and James, and he was transfigured and his eternal glory was revealed to them, we're told that Moses and Elijah were there too. They knew, the apostles knew it was Moses and Elijah, and Moses and Elijah there on the Mount of Transfiguration representing the law and the prophets. And what did the father say? This is my son, hear him. But what does the narrative say by the Holy Spirit? They only saw Jesus. When they opened their eyes, at one point, Elijah and Moses were gone, and they only saw Jesus, and the father said, this is my son, hear him. So if we wonder what Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophet means for us tonight, I will tell you this, see Jesus and hear him. And the more time we spend in the word, the more time we spend in prayer, the more time we spend stilling our mind and bringing peace upon our heart, that's, we're getting ready for eternity. And we will see him, or we will hear him, and the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. But the busyness of somehow that we're gonna justify ourselves, which is a trap of world religions and human philosophies, is never going to work. So when we think about Jesus saying he fulfilled the law and the prophets, he lived that perfect sinless life. And in the life he lived, he fulfilled the promises concerning his coming to save us. And he explained that to the apostles there in Luke 24. And the New Testament, when we're told in Acts chapter 2, when the church began, that they continued daily steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. And the apostles' doctrine was the apostles being led by the Holy Spirit to expound the Old Testament and show the early church how Jesus Christ fulfilled all those scriptures and promises. Now, as we're going through Matthew, we've already seen in Jesus' childhood how he fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. You know, he, he would come out of, born in Bethlehem, come out of Egypt, be called a Nazarene. We already saw that. And so Jesus is, he's the one that does it. It's him. It's a reminder, the beauty, and we'll get to this before we're done, that his perfect sinless life, when we put our faith and trust in him, is reckoned to our account. So we need to see him. And that he has fulfilled all these prophecies of the past to prove that he is the Messiah. And there's a whole bunch more coming for his second coming as well. So he's the one. Worship generation, isn't it beautiful when we gather here? We're not gathering here to get whipped up like a high school pep rally to go out and play a team that we can't beat. <laughs> isn't it nice to come here and just look to Jesus, receive his word like Mary, sit at the feet of Jesus, and receive and have our faith. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God and have our faith built up and go, you know, we can do this. I can face this at work. I can face this in the home. And I can face the planet and what's coming our way. We got this. We can do this. For we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And apart from him, we can't do anything anyway. So the more we look, the more we listen, it's good for us. But it's so good to know that we don't save ourselves. Because again, going back to when I was a teenager, I used to think, I would do bad. And many of you relate to this. I would do bad, like do really bad. And then I would want to do good. 
So that's literally why I told people I literally would hit the holy water twice on the way out of the Catholic Church. I would double dip. Because I figured I'd double dip the other way. I was double naughty. I might as well get double holy. And in my mind, it was like a, a checking account. You're like, okay, just deposits were made. Oh, big withdrawals on Friday and Saturday. So I got to make big deposits on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And it was like, ah, it was like frustrating. Because I was going to save myself. And of course, many of you know in my testimony, there in the spring of, 90, of 87, when I read John 19 for the first time, and on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And that very moment I read that, the Holy Spirit made it clear to me that I must be saved by him. And he has saved me. And that's the beginning of the journey of being born anew and born by the Spirit. He fulfills the law and the prophets. It's see him, hear him. Now the second thing we see in the text, it says whoever does and teaches the commandments. So it says, uh, verse, 10, uh, verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so that's... You know, that's, we don't need to go there. We all understand that context. But this one here, particularly for the church of Jesus Christ in 2023, whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the context is the commandments. So there in Romans chapter 13, Paul the apostle led by the Holy Spirit summarized the commandments because, again, we were talking about the Ten Commandments earlier. So once again, with the law of God, most of you know, but the law of God itself has three segments. The moral law for individuals, the Ten Commandments. The civil law for a society, how you treat your neighbor. So consequences of kidnapping, rape, murder, these types of things. They're all there in the law, civil law to govern the people of Israel. And then the religious law that pointed toward Jesus. So Feast of Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles, Yom Kippur, all those things. The animal sacrificial system, which we know all those things point to Jesus but we know that Jesus has fulfilled those things. So he fulfilled the law of God perfectly, morally, as a perfect sacrifice in our place, sinless, because if he had sin, he died for his own sin. So he's a sinless sacrifice. But he's a perfect citizen. He never did anyone wrong in a civil society. And he fulfilled the Passover lamb. That's why John the Baptist said, Behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Peter in the New Testament says, as to a, uh, as a lamb without blemish, that we're, we're not redeemed by gold and silver, but by the blood of a lamb without blemish. And then, of course, Paul said, the Corinthians, Christ, who is our Passover. So Jesus fulfills all those things. So really what that leaves us with, there's no nation in the world that is under the Mosaic Covenant right now, although Israel, of course, has the promises of God for them as a people group to the end game, which we see sustained even to this day. But technically... The Mosaic Covenant, as we understood it, is no longer in place. Because Jesus, uh, the New Covenant, he, he said there on the night he was betrayed, he said, I take this bread, take this cup, the cup of the New Covenant. And we're told in the New Testament, it's the everlasting covenant. So Jesus of the law of God, he fulfills the spiritual imagery of the religious law. The priest said, he's our great high priest, right? So he... he, he Check. Civil law is the perfect citizen, so there's principles of the law, obviously, for civil law that have benefited societies that, that's, you know, to be figured out by the governments of men and women. But we come back to the moral law of the Ten Commandments. And this was the big issue in the early church because as people with no religious background were giving their lives to Christ, 
the Jewish believers were saying, well, it's not that easy. It's Jesus plus circumcision. It's Jesus plus keeping the law. And so people are like, well, what, what are the law like? Do I need to keep the Nazarite vow? Do I need to do Passover? Do I need to... Uh, because the Pharisees, for example, they took the Sabbath day, which was one of ten commandments, and they made 610 sub-commandments from it. And that's what men do, right? That's what religious men and women do. They, they just tack onto the word of God because that's how people are. So in that, there in the book of Acts in the first generation of the church, they, they, it was a big deal. Because Paul went out preaching and people who had no religious background gave their lives to Christ, were saved by faith, were rejoicing in the Lord. And then these Pharisees were, who were believers in Christ were coming forth like, oh, you got to do this and you got to circumcise this guy or he's not going to heaven. And it's, you know, it's Jesus plus, you know, tabernacle, Jesus plus Passover. And no, it's not. No, it's not. And that's what Acts chapter 15 is all about. It's Jesus. And Peter stood up and said to them, why would we ever put a yoke on these people, these Gentiles, anyone other than Jews, that we ourselves couldn't carry or do or fulfill? Far be it from us. So that's where they wrote the letter of compromise. Obvious things. Don't eat things with blood and don't commit sexual morality. It's like, well, you know. <laughs> uh, a couple, they, they came up with a, a letter and a, but they didn't go like, hey, they didn't go, hey, let's, let's print all Deuteronomy and make sure every local church in Syria has a copy of Deuteronomy. And when you go back to Turkey, give them copies too. Those people in Ephesus need to read the Torah and make sure they understand it's Jesus plus the Torah. No, it's not. It's Jesus because he fulfilled the law. But that still leaves us the commandments because you still come back to the Ten Commandments, which are a moral compass for, because we're told in the New Testament the law is good. And if we could save ourselves, that's how we would save ourselves. So it's not like the Lord gave the Ten Commandments and said, this works in the Old Testament to prove that you can't do it. But really, there's a whole other set of commandments in the New Testament that you can do. No, it's not like that. In fact, in the prophecies made in the Old Testament, particularly with, with like Jeremiah, God said, I'll put a new heart in you through faith. And by my spirit, you will fulfill my commandments. So then in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, led by the Holy Spirit, Paul the Apostle, after he'd been going through all these controversies, he just summarized the commandments this way. This is Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Okay, that makes it simple. Verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So, this is a very important passage. And by the way, there when Paul wrote the Colossians shortly thereafter, talking about that it's grace and not the law, he talked about how some people esteem one day and another another, let each be convinced in their own mind. So he talked about the law of liberty. As the Ten Commandments are reaffirmed in the New Testament for, for believers, one Noteworthy, nine are reaffirmed, but not ten, because we're not under the Sabbath. So the Sabbath was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant between Israel and God. 
So any Christian denomination or sect or people group that makes church have to be on Saturday as a form of obedience and calling churches that meet on Sunday a form of disobedience is just wrong. Wrong with the scriptures, wrong with God. It's just wrong. It's not correct. Because we know since the Lord rose on the first day, which is Sunday, that's why the churches in the, in the book of Acts met on the first day. Church history from the offset was not to meet on the Sabbath, which takes us back. Like Hebrews says, no one can be saved by the blood of bulls and goats. But we're saved because Christ died once for all, and all live in Christ. And even so, as the church, even though it was birthed out of Old Testament Judaism, because Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he's also the king of kings, he rose on the first day of the week. And the church has always met on Sunday mornings. And of course, we all know, and as church history says, based upon persecuted nations and different things, while it might be traditional, whether it's Russian Orthodox, Catholic Church, or Anglican, or Methodist and Baptist, historically, the thousands of Christian denominations that exist have met on Sunday, but there's no righteousness in meeting on Sunday, nor is there any less righteousness to meet on Saturday. And that's why Paul the Apostle said, one person esteems one day, another, another. Let each be convinced in their own mind. But there's no righteousness in Sunday or not. But I bring it up because we're talking about the commandments and the New Testament and what Jesus said. So I don't want to so I don't want to be guilty of saying, like, hey, the Sabbath doesn't matter. It it was a sign of the covenant with Israel. But of course, the principle of the Sabbath goes back to before Israel. On the seventh day, God rested. So it is good to take a day off. It's very important to have a day off. And we all have different busy schedules. In, in our busyness and sometimes double-income families that try and make it in Orange County or Southern California. And if you don't look out for your day off, no one else can look out for it. And you have to map it out and you have to define it. I keep telling all the young people, if you don't look out for your marriage, don't expect anyone else to. If you don't look out for your kids, don't expect anyone else to. If you don't look out for your personal income, don't expect anyone else to. If you don't look out for your investments and your long-term financial planning, don't expect anyone else to. And if you don't look out for your day off and your physical health, as I said on Tuesday night, if you don't set your colonoscopy appointment, no one else is going <laughs> to. If you were here Tuesday night, I was, like, I was like, I can't believe I said that from the pulpit. I just did it again. <laughs> Funniest thing is someone came to me and said, I just had a colonoscopy. Someone walked by me and said, I'm getting one this week. And the young people are like, what's a colonoscopy? And, and someone told me, it's your 50th birthday present. That's, that's what it is. So you'll figure it out when you turn 50, all right? I can't look out for your health for you, right? You, you need to protect your Sabbath day, you, you know. Everyone's got their side hustle on this day in California. Maybe it's for people in Texas and Arizona that can take a day off clearly, definitively, but most people, you're, you're all working very hard to make it in this economy and the expenses here. So I just give you a word from my own life in 35 years of ministry. Figure out which day that is and protect it. Not for righteousness on the day of the Lord, but for health until you get to glory. So... The Ten Commandments, then, are really summed up in just us loving one another. I, I love it because, you know, things can get complicated, right? Things can, get, you can, things can get complicated in your mind, and less is more, and simplicity is clarity. And I just love it, like, hey, am I obeying the commandments of God? Are you loving people? Do you not have malice and bitterness in your heart? Did you give it to the Lord? Did you give them the Lord? Yes, then you're, you're doing just great. Because we know if you truly love people unconditionally, you will obey these commandments. It all, you're not going to lie, cheat, steal, and, and lust. Like, I mean, you're going to win that battle. You're going to fight for it. If you really love people, you're, 
Man, greater love has no, no man than this, and they lay down their life for their friend. And Jesus is going to tell us in the Sermon on the Mount that what separates us from the world, professing love of God, is we actually love our enemies. But you say, oh, Joey, that's hard, man. Someone ripped me off on my rental. They're still squatting in my property, in my investment property. I, I, that's a hard thing. I can't even imagine. But you're leaving it behind anyways. And if you make it an offering and you pass that test, good for you on the day of the Lord. Jesus died for people, not property. Jesus died for people, and the most valuable asset on planet Earth is your fellow human being. And the greatest love of all is to be the servant of all and to learn how to forgive. Because you, <laughs> we know that. When you sign up for ministry, you know what it is? It's death to self. That's what it is. And it took me a few years in ministry to figure out this is like an endless video game. Someone comes in my life, I can't forgive, and I don't go forward until I learn to forgive them. But it wasn't until like the 20th year of ministry that I realized I'm that person for someone else. Are you get me? It's like, it suddenly occurred to me when I was about 45, like, maybe people have a hard time forgiving me. Hmm. <laughs> be quick to say you're sorry and be quick to forgive. The Ten Commandments will naturally overflow from your life if you're truly filled with the Spirit. Because we're told the love of God is shed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's freely given to us. So if we're a spirit-filled woman and we're a spirit-filled man, what's the fruit of the Spirit? What's top of the list? It's love. And some people believe the rest of the description is a byproduct of love. Either way, it starts with love. They'll know you're my disciples by love. Hey, we sing it in catechism. They'll know we're Christians by our love, by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we're Christians by our love. Hey, that's good theology. It's good theology in kindergarten. It's good theology in memory care. It'll serve you well to the end. The one who dies loving wins. And I can tell you as a minister, it's really easy to tell where people are at with the Lord. When their heart is filled with love toward people, you know they're doing good, regardless of what denomination or uh, theologies they have that might seem different. But when they're filled with wrath, it doesn't, and when they're filled with bitterness, it doesn't matter what statement of faith you have, evangelical or whatever, it doesn't matter. Like if you, if you, if you don't have love in your heart, then that's, that's, the love of God's been shed upon our heart through the Holy Spirit, and that's, that's what we're going after in Jesus' name. That's how, we, that's how we live the righteous life. And that's what Jeremiah said. He'll, God said, I'll, I'll give him uh, exchange of stone tablets for a tender heart, and they'll, they'll obey my commandments. You don't have to wake up and say, oh, okay, i got to not do this and not do that and not do this. No, you just got to get up and pray, and if the Lord says you got to get this right with somebody, get it right, and just let love be the defining mark of your life. I've done a lot of memorials, like many of you. I've been at many memorials. And we all know when someone goes in eternity whether their life was a testimony of faith, obedience, and most importantly, love. Now, the last thing we see in this text of Jesus fulfilling it all, he fulfills the law, and, you know, he empowers us to do the commandments, uh, to love them, and love is the key. And, and then we see the righteousness that has, that has to exceed the religious leaders, and this is where we started tonight, and this is how we seal the deal. Now, in their minds, again, they would have thought of righteousness as more good than bad, like Joey back in the 70s, late 70s. In their mind, like, hey, you know, you can help a donkey on the Sabbath day out of the pit, but don't help a person, right? Like their mind, it's all, it's all like a self-centered legal relationship with God, like paying taxes before middle of April, right? With God, and it was all wrong. 
and as obtainable as unobtainable as religion or righteousness seemed to me looking at the priests and the altar boys there at the Oceanside Mission in the mid-70s, that's just how obtainable it would be, be to them in these situations. So how can we ever exceed that righteousness? Well, it goes back to that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. It goes back to Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary. It goes back to him being born in Bethlehem. and Everything that he, he does the work, he's done it. And that we would be saved by faith through grace is taught by Jesus in the New Testament. Because he said, come to me. He called people to himself. He said, in the scriptures, you think there is life, but they are that which declare me to you. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest and take my yoke upon you. He constantly, the one who comes to me, I will no means cast out. He drew people to himself. He said, unless you believe that I am, that is the God of the burning bush, you will die in your sins. But he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, that's why they hold that up in the end zone of the football game still sometimes. That's the gospel. He said that God said the Father so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believed would not perish but have everlasting life. It's belief. Then in the Great Commission in Mark 16, he says that he who believes and is baptized, but then he says in the reaffirmation, it's not the baptism that saves you, it's the believing that saves you. Believing. Then in the narrative of John chapter 3, John the Baptist says that he who has a son has life, he does not have a son, the wrath of God abides upon him. John 3, 36. But the beauty of Romans, the book of Romans by the Apostle Paul, generally considered the gospel message, you know, the gospel is expanded through the life of Paul the Apostle, but there in Romans chapter 3, it is just as clear as it could ever be, so uh, listen to me carefully as I, as I read this from Romans 3, and think of what Jesus just said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can by no means enter the kingdom of God, so that's the statement, so now here we go with the Holy Spirit in Romans, Romans chapter 3, after saying that everyone's sinful, we're all sinners, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it's coming up on us. And there's building blocks of Paul in Romans chapter 3 by the Holy Spirit, but he says this in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Hey, we can talk about interpretation from within the text itself. So the righteousness of God, apart from the law of God, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ on all and to all who believe. Now, parenthetically, Hebrews. That's why we're told, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, not keeping the law and the Ten Commandments to earn God's favor, but those things just come by the work of the Spirit in our life. It's the cause and effect. The cause is saved by faith. The effect is walking in the Spirit and fulfilling those Ten Commandments. But it's not the other way around. Because all flesh is, by the works of the flesh, no one's justified. It's not possible. There'll be someone you can't forgive. And there'll be someone you'll lust after. And there'll be something you'll want to take from someone else. The difference between the one that's saved by faith and born of the Spirit is we have the power to have victory over those things. But the person who thinks they can do those things on their own apart from the Lord, first of all, you can't. But even if you had a 99% rate, you still fail. Because to be guilty of one part of the law is guilty of all the law. It's a pass-fail. Perfection or anything less than that. Pass-fail and only Jesus is perfect. 
So therefore, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. That's good news. Whether you're rich or poor, male or female, Jew or Gentile, free or slave, whatever, whoever you are on planet Earth, 8 billion people, that's good news. To all and all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, 8 billion people right now on this planet, we are all guilty sinners before God. But it says, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. See, it's the righteousness by faith in Jesus who has fulfilled the law and died for sinners and risen from the grave for our hope and justification. Being justified freely, the free gift of God, salvation. Being justified freely by his grace. Grace is a gift received, not earned. If you earn it, it's not grace. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation, a substitute, by his blood, because he died in our place, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I'm going to repeat that last phrase so you get it clearly and deep in your soul because the word of God is living and powerful and it pierces bone, marrow, soul, and spirit. And you need to know truly how you're saved and what your confidence is when you're breathing your last on that last day. My confidence isn't because I was an altar boy or a good priest or a good pastor or a family man or anything else. My confidence is in Jesus Christ who died for me, rose for me, and is coming for me. So let's read this one more time. Because our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, and this is the righteousness that does. God sent forth to be our substitute, his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously committed in your life and anyone that comes to Christ, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He justifies me, he justifies you. Which brings us now to the whole apex or the high tide mark of the entire thought process here. Positional righteousness and practical righteousness. Positional righteousness is what we have the moment we commit our life to Christ. As many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God, not born of flesh, not born of blood, not born of the will of man, but born of God. Born again from above by the Spirit. The Spirit comes into us, literally. Lights on, somebody's home. The moment that happens, before that, in Adam, all sin and die. Death sentence. Spiritually dead, physically going to die, and eternally doomed and separated from God. But when we come to Christ, in Adam, all are made, from Adam all are dead, but in Christ all are made alive. The second Adam. This is Romans 5. And so now, being this Adam could not save himself or herself, but this Adam through faith in Jesus, because Christ is the second Adam, he paid the price, so his righteousness is imputed to our account. He paid the price for the sins of this, this standing in Adam, but in Christ we come over, and now we're found in his righteousness. So regardless of a good day, bad day, it's all going well or going really bad, the Father sees perfection. He sees the Son when he looks at you and me from here to eternity. He doesn't see the gaff or the blunders of the day. 
So this is our confidence. This is our, this is our confidence right here. That's our confidence. That we're not going to be moved. Paul said, none of these things move me. Our confidence is righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees through faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ who came and died and saved us from our sins, whom the Father gave while we were yet enemies. The Son died for us, reconciling the world to himself. We're under the blood. We're under Christ. And so the Father, regardless of whatever has gone on in your world, in your outward world, in the practical righteousness, he sees perfection. That's what he sees. God made him to be who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's that positional righteousness imputed and reckoned to our account. It's amazing. But it's like you didn't even know it, but you're in the will. You got this state. The will is open. You're, you're a beneficiary whether you chose to be or not. Like that's, that's, that's the, the, the result. So he doesn't want us striving to save ourselves We're the, to earn our own righteousness or manufacture our righteousness because it has to exceed the Pharisees and they were pretty good in the flesh. It's the righteousness of what Christ did, fulfilling the law and the prophets, reckoned to our account. I think there's a lot of zeros in that account with big numbers, right? Like, it's, it's there. The Father sees the Son. And nothing can change that. Not your worst day or your worst act. Nothing can change that. We come from victory because Christ is victory. And our righteousness is established by Christ. And this is the key to the fruitful Christian life, the abundant life from here to eternity that Jesus talked about. And that's why it says in Ephesians chapter 2, by grace you've been saved, that through faith, not of works, that's Adam right here, lest anyone should boast. There's no boasting here. There, you could boast here, but you can't get it done. But when you come here, there's no boasting. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus before time began. So when we pass from here to here, now we're not earning our salvation, we're coming forth from our salvation. And therein is the key to the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. It's Jesus' righteousness who fulfilled the law and the prophets, established for all humanity to come to. And when we come to him and receive him, we receive that righteousness. And the Father sees us in that righteousness. And that's our confidence on our last breath, is our positional righteousness through faith in Jesus. Now, the reality of our life is, though, like we all know, is a human experience. But he's not, we're told that he's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. So God has given us the spirit. He's given us the power to do it. And as I said Tuesday night, it's not for a lack of the available power to fulfill the right things with God. It's just my pride and stubbornness that keeps me from it. So if we humble ourselves, submit to the spirit, we're going to be victorious and we're going to produce the works that are by the spirit that God's intended for our life. But the works of the first Adam, they're, they're dead. Nothing's going to work. So the rest of the Sermon on the Mount goes forward from this thought. And that's why it's so important to understand this. Because we're going to be studying all the commandments going forward the rest of this chapter next week. And it's important that we all know in our hearts that the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees is available to all of us. Through the person, the work of Jesus Christ and the personal faith we put in him. So let's get on with it. Yes and amen.